Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week on the show, two guests. First, we are honored to welcome one of the best running backs to ever play the game. That is not an overstatement when you're talking to Marshall Falk. A member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the College Football Hall of Fame, we'll talk to Falk about his time at San Diego State, being part of one of the great NFL offenses of all time, and the exciting things going on now with the Aztecs football program. After Marshall Falk, we'll catch up with an old friend. Teddy Greenstein is a former longtime college football writer for the Chicago Tribune. He has a new book out titled Quarterback Dads. We'll talk to him about his look at the quarterback industrial complex through the eyes of the fathers who are trying to guide their sons to greatness. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find this podcast at appodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's awesome NFL podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps more college football fans find us and helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is one of the greatest running backs to ever play football. Uh, Marshall Falk played for San Diego State, played with the Colts, played with the Rams, is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, is in the College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, Marshall, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, we wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about your career, but also some about some of the great things going on at your alma mater. Uh, so again, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thanks for having me, Ralph. Let's start with this, and we'll get to present-day San Diego State because, again, they got a lot of cool things going on for the Aztecs these days. But I want to take you back to when you decided to go play for San Diego State. Story's been told. That was one of the few places that wanted allowed you to play running back. You were a great player in, in uh, out of the, out of New Orleans. If you can just take me back, like, were you disappointed to not go to an SEC school or maybe an Oklahoma or, or Nebraska? You know, I, I'm sure you, you loved your time at San Diego State, but when, when you were being recruited, were you frustrated by the fact that no other school allowed you, wanted you to play running back? No, I, you know, I, um, for, for me, it was, it was just making sure I went to a school that was going to give me an opportunity to play the position I wanted to play. The fact that they, that they, you know, most of the, the 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 power five schools didn't look at me as a as a guy who could play running back for their team and their conferences or whatever. I, I didn't I didn't really take it as a slight. Um, I I just I knew, uh, and my my high school coach did a really good job at at you know not just teaching us football but making sure that the game is fun when you're having fun, and <laughs> nobody's having fun when they're playing a the position that they don't want to play. Did you actually let, let me? I love. I love to ask great players this question. When did you know you were special? You know, I mean, like let's throw modesty aside here. When uh, were you ten or eleven? Were you high school? When did you realize? You know, I think I'm a little different here from some of the from the rest of the guys I'm playing against. Um, you know, when I when I look back at at just my career and when I started. Um, 
I at a it didn't happen at a young age for the simple fact that I always played up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I, I have I have five older brothers. Um, they're all two years apart. I'm five years removed, so I I had to I had to play up. That's the, you know I always play with older kids, and you know I felt like I was competing with them at a, you know like I, and I and I was. But once I got to like high school and I got to play with kids my own age, it was different. I was like, hold on, wait, this is different. Mm-hmm. And and because I went to um, probably not the best sports school in high school, it was just, you know, it was a school that was, um, you know, academically, they were pretty decent, but we weren't the best in sports. So we didn't get the best athletes um, per se. And um it was, it wasn't, you know, I, I would, I would be like the best player on the field, but, you know, didn't really have a good offensive line. Mm-hmm. Like we were missing things. And so didn't really get to evaluate myself. But when I got to college and um, the playing field was level, you know, I had linemen the size of their linemen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, it was different. Um, and, you know, my, my, my first couple of games in college really showed. Um, I went from a high school kid who who played offense, defense, and special teams. I, I never left the field to I I only have to play offense, and that I mean that was like a luxury. Hold on, wait, I only get to play offense. I don't even have to play special teams. So I really got a chance to see. I'm gonna say my freshman year, I was like, you know, I was I was I said, damn, I'm pretty good. And I remember calling my high school coach. He said, listen. I always knew that's why I moved you around and I taught you the game to make sure you understood what was going on around you, not just the talent playing the game. Okay. So for people who don't know, uh, I'm sure the older guys like me remember, but for other people who don't know, the second game of Marshall Falk's college career, I want to make sure I get these numbers right here. 386 yards and seven touchdowns against Pacific. So, yeah, I think pretty soon we realize, and I also want to give a, a pop here to Al Luganbill. Al Luganbill was the coach at San Diego State at the time, and he was the guy who said, no, 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 you're going to play running back out here, so come and play running back. If that name sound, sounds familiar to folks, Al Luganbill, Tom Luganbill of ESPN, that's his dad. So, yeah, your second game, you pop for an NCAA record almost 400 yards. I got to imagine at that point you kind of felt like, okay, yeah, I belong here. Yeah, it, it was a it, – actually, uh, uh, it was a, like I belong here and what just happened? Like what just happened? <laughs> I'm like, man, I, was, like, I can do this, but what just happened? <laughs> you know, you just it, – it, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the norm. Those things weren't just happening, you know, night in and night out in, in college football on any level. So um, it was, I'll tell you what it was, you know, um, kid coming from the South, humble beginnings, um, to be thrusted, you know, I was thrusted into the national spotlight. And um, that was, uh, that was, that was weird, you know, <laughs> now having cameras in my face. Walking around school, you know, I, I I was I was in school for almost a month, and you know I was I was the last four digits of my social security number on a chart, and now now <laughs> these professors know me, everybody know it's like it's weird to then start walking around campus with these eyes on you, you know, um, and and praise, you know, and praise. 
I, I really, really, really had to make sure I remained grounded and, uh, and not allow the early success to, to really get to me. How cool was it just being in, you know, again, it wasn't maybe the programs that dominate the headlines, but I, I, I'm just going to guess here that maybe you hadn't spent a whole lot of time in California, Southern California, um, growing up. So what was that transition like just to being in one of the most beautiful cities? I mean, you know, regardless of what was going on in the football program, one of the most beautiful cities in the world and you're far away from home. What would, And not to mention, you become an almost instant superstar. So give me a little taste you talk about being being just the four digits on of your social security uh number uh to the college and then all of a sudden you're a star what was all that like being in a new town being in a, an interesting place uh and and becoming a star with that background as opposed to maybe being a star closer to home yeah i mean it was a, I, I was i was more wide-eyed you know um when going to san diego state at that time in the early 90s how diverse it was Coming from Louisiana, where it's um, you know pretty black and white, mm-hmm. uh, you know you you go to this this diverse school that that's that's very liberal, that's uh, progressive, and you know um, all of a sudden culturally, um, you know there, there's there's not a minority, there's minorities, mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 just the abilities to to uh to to be around that um to to learn other cultures and 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 other things um it, it was good and and you know I, I if i if i had to say i think the experience was like unique that san diego state wasn't a big football school at the time right right and 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 because of what happened and how i bursted onto the scene it was almost as if they were looking, it was like, it had been a while because it was a school that was rich in football back in the day um, in the sense of, you know, having really good players, um, having really, I mean, great coaches. I mean, we've, we've put out some great coaches. They've started their career there. They coached at San Diego state and went on to do great things and, and not just college football, but professional football as well. So the history was there and, and to have these kids, and and the student and the student body and the faculty now like embracing football. It was just it, it was it was amazing, man. It was like uh I I think it I think even if if there was a if there was a let's say if I would have been at USC, I don't think it could have been any better because you know it, it was like it was like new at, at San Diego State for this to be the the thing or the norm compared to at a USC or Oklahoma, this is the, at a Texas, that was standard for them. Mm-hmm. That, that was always happening. So we got to experience it, student body, um, faculty, uh, community. We all got to experience it all together as one. Uh, yeah, listen, I, I think as a, a guy who was, uh, you know, I'm a little older than you and I was a big college football fan, but here in New York City growing up and you were my entry to San Diego State, right? I, I, like there's this, you know, this school with these very cool uniforms and they got this running back who's like amazing and you catch their games sometimes late at night. And yeah, I mean, to, I think to a lot of people, Marshall Falk b- bursted not just onto the scene, but but brought San Diego State onto the scene. And again, like it was like this cool running back and these cool uniforms. Like, why would you not want to watch that? <laughs> Yeah, 
<laughs> and and not to mention it it was the kind of the birth of Thursday night football. That's a good point too. Yeah, yeah. You you, know, you guys were doing a lot of those weeknight games back in the in the uh, in the in the uh, whack in the whack at that time, right? Because it was the whack. It was the Mountain West at that time. So yeah, it was such an interesting time to to, to again to your arrival into college football. Now you were there. You were a Heisman. You were a finalist. You were, I think, came second one year, ninth one year, and your your numbers were just crazy good. In fact, your your last year, your junior year, probably was the year you you deserved the Heisman. Over tw- almost twenty two hundred yards from scrimmage and like twenty five touchdowns. But there was one year where I, I guess that your your sophomore year where I believe you came in second to Geno Toretta. So, um, listen, this is no disrespect to Geno. But again, probably could have had a, a Marshall Falk Heisman. But did you personally, did you take it personal, the fact that you never won a Heisman? Or were you just sort of happy that you got the opportunity to be mentioned for an award like that? Um, you know, at the time uh, when I was in college, I took it personal. Uh, and I was young and it was, you know, it was it was about it was about uh, accumulating things like that. But when I realized what not winning the Heisman did for me, which is the intensity, the focus, to making sure that when I got to the NFL, that they understood that that I had the abilities to play this game at a high level. And um, it wasn't the level of competition. It just, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, not winning, I'm going to say, helped me more than hurt me because it kept me focused and it kept me hungry. And and when you're young, when you know when you're when you're you know eighteen, nineteen, sometimes you need those you need you need things like that to kind of smack you in the face because you know I, I was man I I think I was I was so trying to just remain humble and but you're 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 thrusted into the spotlight and it's 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 hard to stay grounded. But I believe what I needed what, what needed to happen was me not winning the Heisman. It's it was perfect. It was perfect for for what I needed to set me up for me to go into the NFL with a chip on my shoulder of let me, let me show them I can play this game. Let me show them. Well, Marshall Falk showed him pretty quick that he could play the game because you came out rookie year. For, first of all, you were a real high draft pick for the for the Colts. Rookie year, 1,200 yards rushing, another 500 receiving, a whole bunch of touchdowns. So you were a great player pretty much immediately. With that said... Again, another thing I, I enjoy asking to guys who had long careers in the NFL, when you first get to the NFL, did you have a welcome to the NFL moment? Did you have a moment oh where God. like, like, hey, man, I, I know I can play, but boy, these guys are really good. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I knew, you know, I as a, see, I grew up a football fan. I wasn't just like some guy who was talented and played. You know, I was a football fan. I was a kid who, who played football. And I love football. I, I, I watched it, um, knew, knew the game uh, in and out. But um, the, the appreciation and understanding for it, it was, it was unbelievable. And when I, when, I, uh, when I got there in practice, you know, it was like training camp in practice. That, that was that was like my moments of man these kids i mean these guys are these guys are are really good but <laughs> but i think beyond these guys are really good 
what happened was I realized that, you know, as a, as a kid that I was playing with some grown men who had responsibilities mm-hmm. and that although this was a game, it was a business. That's the thing I learned quick. My hate, my, my welcome to the NFL moment was understanding that, that this was a business and, and yes, it's a game, but there's some guys whom this is how they feed their family. Like it's serious. And, and I, I, I thank um, the likes of a Kurt Laudermilk, of a Randy Dixon, like Gene, Eugene Daniels, pulling me aside and, and making sure that I understood, yes, it's fun, but there's a business here. And, and that, that was my moment. It wasn't on the field. It was off the field, realizing the things I needed to, to make sure were important. And I took care of the things off the field so I can take care of the things on the field. Okay, so I want to ask you one more about your time in the NFL, and that is you played for one of the greatest offenses the NFL has ever seen, the greatest show on turf, St. Louis Rams with Kurt Warner and those great receivers, Isaac Bruce. Uh, You know, in some ways, Marshall, I look at your numbers, and I don't want to say you you were way ahead of your time because Roger Craig was – they were great receiving running backs, right? But I, I wonder, like, I'm sure you made a lot of money playing playing football, but I also do wonder, I look at your stats, if, like, in today's day, like, when we sort of value those skill sets a little more, in, if, if you would have been even more valuable today. I think the Rams, like, really understood that probably more than anybody else, maybe more than most teams that it was like, no, 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 like, yes, he's a running back, but he's really just a weapon. We're just going to get him the ball a lot in a lot of interesting ways. And I wonder if you look at today's offenses and you see a lot of, like, hey, this is the stuff we were doing back then. We were cutting edge back then. Yes. Yes. I mean, the things that we did were were before their time. You know, Mike Martin's ability to just, and his desire to just take risk. If, 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 if we drew something up and somebody was like, oh, well, you can't really do that, that meant we were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally, I mean, he was really big on pushing the envelope and trying things that hadn't been done before and just seeing how 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 they were going to react and how I played the game. Yeah, there was other there was other backs who who definitely, you know, caught the ball out of the backfield and did things similar to what I did. But I think I think how I was used and what Mike did, which was incorporating me into the receiver group, mm-hmm. not just having a run being a running back who caught the ball, but incorporate me into the receiver group really, really helped my growth in the game and my understanding of, of how the mismatches and dictating to them what defense that they could play based on the formations and the things that we did with regular personnel. It really changed the shape of the game. Um, this is why you see linebackers, 220 yeah. 215 pound linebackers. Mm-hmm. You can't put a you can't put a 250 pounder out there and, and ask him to cover myself or you know now people are using tight ends the same way. It's just it's just different. That that the linebacker position changed because of the what what they do with running backs now. 
So you just got to indulge me for a second, Marshall, and then we'll talk, we're going to talk about San Diego State, and we can talk about the new stadium and all. But you got to indulge me here. For a three-year period, Marshall Falk averaged over five yards a carry. Had one his first season in St. Louis, a thousand yards rushing and a thousand yards receiving, but not just a thousand yards, almost fourteen hundred yards rushing, and well over a thousand yards receiving. Twelve yards a catch too. The next two years, I'm just going to do the quick math here. You scored 48 touchdowns the next two seasons combined. And in both of those seasons, you missed two games in each of those seasons. So uh, that's not a question, Marshall. That's just to say, like, you put up some crazy numbers. And again, like, I, I, I do sort of wonder if in some ways we may have undervalued your 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 greatness uh, to a certain degree. You're in the Hall of Fame. You're an all-time great. But, man, you did some things that were really, really special in those offenses. And I, I wonder if, again, you sort of look back and like when you sort of glance at those numbers and go, yeah, yeah, we, uh, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good, man. <laughs> well, I, I just understand. I understand what I did. And and not not just from the perspective of 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 numbers and and um, and stats and what I put up, but the position and and and, and how it's played. And, and what the value and what teams are looking for now. Mm-hmm. You have to remember, at the time that I was in the league, the early 90s and stuff like that, I mean, you had Emmett Smith, you had Terrell Davis. They're running for 2,000 yards. Sure. You know, you got Barry Sanders, um, uh, Curtis Martin. Like, it's, it's, all about, it's all about running the football. And, and what I had to do was take a look at my team, and, and I had to say, What's best for this team to succeed? And me getting 25, 30 carries a game, it wasn't that. Now, how, how, can, I, how can I accept a role? And remember, as a running back, we were only evaluated by carries and rush yards. Right, and right. touchdowns. Right. Rushing touch. That was it. Nobody looked at what we did in the passing game as anything. So I had to shine a light on the running back being in a position to where he affected the game more than just when they were running the ball. All right. So now San Diego State, this is an incredibly exciting time for San Diego State's football program. First of all, great, unbelievable success, really. Rocky Long got it going. Well, Brady Hoke got it going at first, and Rocky Long took it. And now San Diego State is a consistently you know, championship contender in the Mountain West Conference, uh, one of the best, you know, group of five, as we use the term, programs in the country. And now they got a new stadium open. Snapdragon Stadium is going to open this year. Give us a little idea of what you think this stadium is going to mean to the program. Well, first of all, I'm going to say, you know, best school in California, most most consistent school in California when it comes to sports and and, and also education-wise and what, what we've done. Uh, down here in San Diego, this stadium, Snapdragon Stadium, is it's really going to uh, put us uh, on the map in a sense of how people look at us. Um, the abilities to 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 get this stadium funded and built uh, is going to shape shape the landscape of San Diego State, and um, and I, I really believe that you know when you're when you're looking when when you're looking at what school to go to, the consistency. Um, the fanfare, uh, the camaraderie, uh, you're going to look at San Diego State as the program that you want to send your kids to. 
And, and I just, I love the mix of um, university and community and what we offer. You know, it's not just some college town. I mean, we're, we're, we are a thriving city um, that, that has uh, the element of, of university there for college kids, or you can live here and be a part of, the, of a community that supports a university that's, that's really, really doing wonderful things within the community. Did you, um, when you look at where the program is now, and again, you had some success in your day, not just personally, but you did win some games. But when you look at what the program is now from the stadium to facilities and everything, do you even recognize it to a certain degree? Uh, you know what? Yes. Yes, because it the, the intent, the intent was, you know, and, 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 and I thought about it. I, I remember um, the guy who recruited me, uh, you know, CJ, uh, Curtis Johnson is great dude, man. Heck of a coach. He's, he's still, he coaches the receivers down in new Orleans, mm-hmm. but you know, his, his statement to me, it stuck with me. You know, you can go to the school and, and, and let the school make you, or you can go make the school. And I was like, San Diego state, it had to start somewhere. Like it, it somebody had to get it started. And yes, there were there were people before me who who was definitely here and 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 did stuff, you know. But to the extent of of where the school is, I was a huge part of the building block to help get it here, to help to help show other athletes that San Diego State was a viable option for them to come in and thrive and get to the next level. Marshall Falk is one of the all-time greats, College Football Hall of Famer, Pro Football Hall of Famer, had an amazing career at San Diego State University back in the early 90s, and now uh, is going to get a chance to see his school sort of take the next step into the big time with the opening of the stadium. Will you, I, I assume you will be at the first game? Oh, yes, 100%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I will definitely be at the first game. Looking forward to it. Um, you know, have, Taking tours of the stadium, uh, look loving what I see. Uh, just I, I think the fans um, and and the athletes like they are going. This this is a place that we can call home. The the unity of 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 community and university and and what's what's being built. Um, it, it this is it, it's perfect. I mean, perfect. So hey, is it going to be? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to spoil anything here. If there's any secrets going on, but is it going to be? Uh, you know, Snapdragon State Marshall Falk Field, maybe? Like what's? Uh, no, 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 <laughs> not no, no, none okay. of that. No, okay. Not yet. Not yet. I'm. 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 I'm still. I'm. I'm not yet. Okay. Right. Not yet. But, but um, you know, uh, definitely, we'll we'll work towards um, trying to build something like that, and obviously things like that. They come in honor of, and that would be awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, Marshall Falk, uh, just a tremendous player. Uh, thank you so much for taking a little time here to talk about your career, talk about San Diego State and all the great things that are happening there. Very much appreciate it, Marshall. All righty. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at 
top25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Joining me next here on the podcast, Teddy Greenstein. Teddy is, well, former sports writer, but hasn't completely moved himself out of the sports uh, content space. Uh, Teddy is with uh, Points Bet, uh, where you can listen to him giving uh, betting advice. Is that a fair way to put, describe it? <laughs> it is, Ralph, man. Great to be with you, fellow Jets fan, fellow New Yorker. Yeah, reformed sports writer here, although stuck with it long enough to write that book. But yeah, man, at Points Bet, I'm senior editor, which means I'm appearing on Golf Channel. I'm helping to create golf bets. I'm kind of highlighting all of our offerings for whether it's the NBA or PGA Tour or certainly come football season. So I'll give a little advice, but it's more so telling people, hey, you know, we've got a boost on this. We've got a special promo on that. Or, you know, what are Phil Mickelson's odds for uh, the U.S. Open? Okay. Now, now, Teddy, of course, once you're a sports writer, you're always a sports writer. Teddy's got a new book out, and that's really the thing that drew me to to reach out to him. It's called Quarterback Dads. Uh, And... The quarterback, I'll, I'll, I like to call it the court, and now I'm not the only one who uses this, but I like to use this phrase, the quarterback industrial complex has become yeah. an interesting part of football uh, in that kids are getting into the pipeline very early, personal trainers, um, all kinds of other investments that are made to raise quarterbacks. And it was very, now this subject has been tackled, Bruce Feldman did a great job uh, a couple of years ago, uh, yes. a book called QB, the QB. And, but this was an interesting way to get into it, Teddy. I was really kind of almost jealous that you, that you found an inter- another different, another interesting way to get into it from the perspective yeah. of dad. So I guess let's start with the very op- like broad question is what drew you to this particular topic and how, how you got into this topic? Yeah, Ralph, it's funny. Like if you put quarterback dads into Amazon before my book came out, it was like, you know, one maybe sort of instruction-y thing from eight or 10 years ago. And then it went straight to romance novels, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. So, you know, think about what this is. This is football. It's It's the number one sport. It's the glamour position. Everybody wants to know who's next. So I can't believe that not more has been written on this topic. So um, just to go back a little bit, on July 4th, 2020, I get a text message from a longtime friend, and his son is an aspiring quarterback. And he says, hey, my kid's trainer is a guy named Donovan Dooley out of Detroit, and he's got all these hilarious and you know horror stories about quarterback dads who are like the modern-day stage moms. So the guy says, hey, Donovan's looking for a ghostwriter. Do you know anyone? I said, I do. That's going to be me because um, – <laughs> hadn't written a book at that point. And for all those reasons I mentioned, uh, you know, it's football, it's quarterbacks. And Ralph, I, I have two daughters and they both play soccer. They play, for, you know, club soccer. So 
I'm also in that kind of youth sports realm. So, you know, I knew I was onto something when my, my first reporting on the book, I was with uh, a father, son, JR and Trey Taylor outside Chicago. And it's just a seven on seven workout. And there's a drone flying overhead. So I asked the dad, JR, I said, what's with the drone? He goes, oh, well, we've got a camera attached to it because we're accumulating footage for an Instagram highlights package. I said, oh, is that normal? You know, I, mean, I didn't think people did that. But that's normal now in the modern day age of quarterback dads who first and foremost are looking to get attention for their kid and in a lot of cases for themselves. Yeah, and I guess that's the interesting because again, like you know, I, I I reached out to Teddy last night. So full disclosure, I have not read the whole book, but I've read a couple of chapters, and I reached out to Teddy last night because he provided it uh, on a PDF, and then uh, again read the chapters that he suggested. Started reading the beginning of the book, feeling that would give me a pretty good idea. And I even before we started recording, I told Teddy like I'm going to knock this out really quick. Like I can already, I'm already really compelled to sort of dive into this thing. You 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 hit it right from the first chapter, but man, that second chapter, and I want to hit on this when you start diving into the uh, Donovan Dooley is the quarterback is the is the quarterback trainer. There's a lot of them these days, and and, I, and frankly, I, I think some of them are a little bit of snake oil salesmen. I think that you'll no find doubt. some of that in that in this business. But Donovan has this interesting story about asking kids, the quarterbacks he's training, here's a, here's a slip of paper. Write, uh, I think it was like just write something that you think about your dad, or or just something that you that you wanted to get off your chest, something along those lines. And and right. I, I'll let you describe sort of what he received as far as feedback. Yeah, like Donovan w- was uh, was at a camp, and he, he's hearing all these parents who are just so obnoxious. Oh, my kid should be MVP. You know, my kid's the chosen one, and, and, and he's just like, God, these parents need to chill the bleep out. So he decides to go and buy index cards and he distributes three by five cards to every kid at this camp. And he says, guys, this is going to be the moment that you can vent. I want you to write something you wish your parents knew, but it's going to remain anonymous. So here are some comments. I'm not starting because of you and you know it. You never played and you still tell me every damn day how to improve. Uh, Mom, you don't know football. Stop. (laughs) Coach hates you. Now I have no shot. So like, this inspired him to try to find a ghostwriter because he wants to get this message across that too many of these dads and some moms just need to dial it back. You know, I mean, just let the kids be kids. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we can get into this. Don't create a social media profile. That doesn't mean don't have a trainer. That doesn't mean, you know, let your kid be lazy as opposed to, you know, maybe waking up early and, and, and working hard. But don't be so obsessive that it ruins, uh, you know, the kid-parent relationship. Yeah, I, I, I think that you're right. I could see this becoming a do's and don'ts, right? And you actually have it set up as in some of yes. the chapters as <laughs> do's and don'ts. So this could end up being a little bit of a guide if you are a dad out there who thinks, man, I, I think my son's pretty good. Maybe I should start getting him trained and maybe I can get him into this pipeline because I, I don't want to discourage people from doing that. It's a it's a difficult pipeline. There's you know there's a lot more kids in the pipeline than kids getting that you know scholarship to Ohio State and going on to the yep. NFL. But there's also a lot of good things you can get in that pipeline that are less than a scholarship to Ohio State. That's right. So let's let, let me start with that. Some of the do's and don'ts, and let's start with some of the do's. Yeah, I mean, so much of it depends on. Um, you know, what kind of level of promise your kid has. So 
Rob, so in the, the, in the chapter on uh, Archie Manning, so by the way, when I started out this book, I had two goals. My first goals in terms of interviewing guys were Todd Marinovich and Archie Manning, because I felt like they represented the two ends of the spectrum. Okay. And the thing I learned from Archie is this, it's not one size fits all. You have to tailor your parental style to your individual kid. And here's the example. Peyton Manning, you know, was hyper intense. He's the kid who is getting to a little league game and he's bossing everyone around on the team. You need to take extra batting practice and you need to take extra fielding practice. <laughs> and Archie is looking at him and, and he's saying, can you calm down? Some kids just want to show up. And, you know, Peyton's watching film as a sophomore in high school. And Archie's saying, why don't you go watch a movie? Go get a girlfriend. So with him, he had to taper him back. Now with Eli, Eli barely said a word until he was eight or 10 years old. So Archie had to make a special effort to spend more time with him and try to draw out his personality. And by the way, the oldest Cooper was just a cut up and hilarious. So Archie didn't have to worry too much about him. So, so what I got from that chapter was basically you have to individualize this. And I, I talked to Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, and that was his message too. When I say, hey, who should be the one setting the alarm clock on a Saturday morning? Should it be the kid or should it be the parent? The answer is it depends. Mm -hmm. Some kids need a kick in the ass and other kids you actually want to throttle them back a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. By the way, uh, the other thing you'll quickly learn by as you start reading this book, there are some sort of tips for being a quarterback dad that actually make also could in disguise are tips for being a dad. Right. That's right. <laughs> this is I'm not saying that Teddy wrote a, a, like the greatest parenting book of all time, but some <laughs> yes, of this are. but uh, some uh, of this is truly about just parenting yeah. in general and you'll notice that like you can take tidbits of it and say oh this this works for just getting my high schooler up in the morning so it, it, yeah and one i would just say along those lines because all of us who have kids who play youth sports deal with this whether it's lacrosse or swimming or football or in my case soccer what should you do during the games what should you do after the game all right, like during the games, clearly we know we should not be yelling at the refs and we should not be screaming at our kids, but you'd be amazed. I mean, there's a soccer mom next to me and, you know, during the game, she's screaming, form a wall, form a wall. And I want to look at her. It's like, you're not the coach. So try to keep your comments to yourself. Now, I've been guilty of this sometimes about, you know, if my daughter who's playing defense gives up a goal. I mean, one time I said, L, play better. And she looked at me and she said, you're not my coach. And I said, you're exactly <laughs> right. My bad. So like, what do we do during games? What do we do after games? Like we don't, we should be peppering our kids with questions. If they want to talk about the game, they will. I'll usually start with something open-ended, but if they'd rather talk about, you know, a boy or, or, or an interesting kid or, or just get an ice cream, I'll let them do that instead. Uh, did you notice, because again, you talked to Archie Manning, but you also talked to other uh, people who are coaches, um, who have sons who play. Kurt Warner was a, a part of this book, and he's got a son yes. who I know plays. And and right. and so former players, former coaches. Did you notice a difference between their approach and the approach of the sort of the average dad who maybe was just a, a player in high school? Hundred percent, Ralph. So the more accomplished the dad the less likely he is to hover and be a helicopter dad. Um, so we, we see that time and again where, um, we, you know, Joel Klatt and, and Brady Quinn and, um, you know, a lot of these dads, Pep Hamilton is a great example. Pep Hamilton knows more about quarterback play than 99.999% of society because he's, 
been a college coach and an NFL coach, but he is content to hand off his son, Jackson, to a professional, Donovan Dooley and Steve Wilson. Because first of all, he has a full-time job. And second of all, when it's your own kid, they're called daddy goggles for a reason. You're probably going to think your kid is better than he is. Hmm. So as long as you can afford it, hand off your kid to a professional. Like with Kurt Warner, it's an interesting dynamic. So Kurt lives in Scottsdale and his backyard has a 50 yard football field <laughs> and a putting green and basketball and all that. He basically lives in a resort. And we went out there uh, last year and I saw quarterbacks and, and receivers working out. And I was there also with his son, EJ. And EJ, I see now is, uh, you know, he ends up getting a scholarship. He's at Temple. He's a freshman at Temple. I think it'd be great to be EJ and rough to be EJ. On the one hand, you got the best facilities and your dad is a genius when it comes to quarterback play. On the other hand, I think Kurt is tough. You know, we were, they had a play up on a diagram board and Kurt dissected it one play for 35 minutes. Like that's how enthusiastic he is about his stuff. And if you're walking around, you know, Arizona and you're a quarterback with Warner on your back, that's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. So um, it's good to be the the son of of Kurt Warner or Archie Manning, um, but sometimes it can be tough as well. One thing I've noticed in sort of covering, because I've written a couple of stories about this, you can't not, if you cover college football, like you have to have some, you have to be versed in this space. And again, the quarterback industrial complex do you have to be in it? In other words, if you're a dad and you're trying to assess like, boy, like how how soon do I need to step into this? How soon do I need to get a trainer? How much, how much training, how much camps? I mean, this stuff gets expensive. So yes. in your conversations with people, how much did they sort of struggle with? How much do I actually need to give up my life for this? Exactly. So so let's start with, with Peyton Ramsey, who had a Great college career, three years at Indiana, and then he went on to Northwestern and led the Wildcats to the Big Ten West title. Peyton Ramsey's uh, father is Doug Ramsey, who's the head coach at Cincinnati Elder High School. And Peyton Ramsey never had a quarterback trainer. He played four years of high school basketball. He got his Indiana offer after a basketball game and told me he would have played four years of high school baseball if he'd been good enough. Now, (laughs) that is by far the exception to the rule. Basically, every other kid in here has had a lot of training, whether we're talking about Caleb Williams, who just transferred to USC, like his dad was so committed to his growth, Carl Williams, you probably know about this, Ralph, that he opened a gym Mm -hmm. when Caleb was like 11 and Caleb would start going, he called it the breakfast club and three, four days a week, including on Saturday mornings, he's up at 530, he's working out. And and that's how it is for most of these guys. Like the one... um, that I mentioned earlier, Trey Taylor. So he is an hour north of me. He just got an offer from the University of Maryland and he's in the seventh grade. So Trey is so advanced that like during the pandemic, his parents and he, they they designed their own logo for Trey. And he's had intense quarterback training practically since he could walk, probably since he was six or seven. Um, He wakes up at 5.30, he does yoga. He, he, He eats grilled chicken and oranges in the morning. He's really into it. You don't have to do it that way, but Ralph, I'll say this. If you are waiting until your kid is 13 or 14 to start looking into trainers and, and getting a social media profile, that gets a little dicey. Like a lot of the dads will tell me you want to start, you know, a little before that, because if you have a good social media profile and a good trainer, that gets you invited to camps. And then if you get invited to camps, that's when you get on the radar of the coaches, and then it's more likely you're going to get a scholarship. Um 
you know, the the quarterback dad that we think of, I think a lot of us, especially guys our age, because we know the story of, you know, you know, quarterback dad gone wrong, maybe. And I don't even know. Maybe that's not a fair assessment is is Marv Marinovich, right? Todd Marinovich's yep. son. He was sort of the first robo quarterback. This was, gosh, I mean, what years were those, Ted? Was that the early 90s, mid 90s? I mean, it's all run together. We're getting old, Teddy. But he was the <laughs> exactly. one, he was one of the first ones who I'm teaching my son from an early age to be a quarterback and hey you know he's never gonna he never ate a Twinkie and things along those lines and um, yes. and listen Todd Marinovich went to USC was a really good quarterback at USC and was a first yes. round draft pick by the That's Oakland right. Raiders now his life spun out in some very different ways and I don't want to get too deep into that but. Yeah. The fact of the matter is Todd Marinovich did have success, but I think a lot of us might look back and think, oh, that didn't go well. And I, yes. only, I only bring that up to say, like, you know, what, what is success here? And what are the dads that you, you sort of hear the stories of that are the true sort of like nightmare dads? Yeah, exactly. So the Marinovich is just as you say, Ralph. It's on the one hand a success story, but mainly a, a failure. So Todd was treated as a science experiment. You know, he, he, he basically when when he was in his mom's womb, Marv decided he was going to be a football player. And when Todd is born, he's teething on liver and, you know, he's 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 having his groin stretched in the crib. And Marv assembled a team of you know scientists and experts to, to focus on Todd. And, you know, Todd was the kid who when he went to somebody else's birthday party, brought his own healthy cake. So he wasn't allowed to have a childhood. His growth was totally stunted. He was scared of his dad. Everything revolved around football. Right. Football-wise, it worked because he became an All-American quarterback and drafted by the Raiders, but he flamed out early. And the big picture, it definitely was a failure because Todd is just, unfortunately, not really a fully formed person. He is uh, a well-meaning guy, uh, but he's an addict who has struggled Majorly, Michael Rosenberg, our buddy's written a ton about him for Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. I was happy to get Todd on the phone. And what was really compelling about it, Ralph, was he has a son named Barron. And guess what Barron wants to do? Barron wants, wants to, to play quarterback. Yep. Todd wants him to be a golfer or a tennis player <laughs> or maybe a wide receiver. And Barron wants to, you know, wants to be front and center. So Todd is totally conflicted on what to do. Does he say you can only play um, uh, flag football? Or does he say, okay, if my kid's going to play, I want to tutor him as well as possible so he doesn't get his head taken off. So when he looks out there, he knows what every player on the defense is doing, where his receivers are going, and then he'll be better prepared and he can thrive. But it is a brutal decision um, for Todd. He is a sweet guy, but but totally conflicted in this way. So, you know, to I guess Marv Marinovich and the Todd Marinovich story is a cautionary tale. Do you sense that even that there are some dads who don't realize that they're going down that path that maybe understand that story, but sort of yeah. go like, well, no, but that's not me, but my, my kid's yeah. different. You know, there's, there's one in here that I think it really speaks to that. And it's uh, Jay and Bryce Underwood. Bryce Underwood is the highest rated ninth grade uh, quarterback in the country. He's already been offered by Michigan. And I think this summer, Ohio state and Alabama are going to offer him. He, he lives outside of Detroit. He has already led his high school team, high school team as a ninth grader, to a state title at Ford Field. The kid is exceptional. The father is Jay Underwood, and he should be watching these games from the stands. He should just be enjoying them. And instead, 
He's a volunteer coach on the team. So whenever Bryce comes off the field after throwing an interception, Bryce doesn't know if he should talk to his quarterback coach or his dad. Mm. And his dad just can't let go. And it's one of those situations like everyone is telling the dad, dude, just let it go, man. Let somebody else coach your kid. And he's really struggling with that. So that's an interesting one because the kid has a world of potential. Could, I mean, if he stays healthy and stays interested, he could be a top five pick in the draft. And the dad, very well-meaning, probably just needs to step aside. Yeah, the, the, there was an interesting, the other side of that, I guess, at least to a certain degree, um, read the chapter on Phil Sims, who had two sons who played quarterback. Chris Sims, most notably, went to Texas. Uh, and, you know, again, you cannot say that he was not a success. The kid played at Texas and was drafted in the NFL and knocked around the NFL for a little while. That is a success. But Phil Sims in the book mentions to you that maybe I should have been more involved. Maybe in retrospect, I would have been better off being a little more involved in their development or at least in in a certain part of their development. So that was an interesting chapter for me, Ralph, because it is totally different from all the other dads like Archie Manning, who, you know, went through these high profile recruitments with Peyton and Eli and and his philosophy was always my kid's going to choose. He's going to be the one who has to live with this decision. You know, he's an adult, he can handle it, et cetera, et cetera. That's what the vast majority of dads will tell you. And then you have Phil Sims, you know, Chris Sims, top-ranked kid from New Jersey, son of a great quarterback, chooses Texas. And Texas already has Major Applewhite. So whenever Chris is playing, that means Major Applewhite, this local legend and hero, is going to be on the bench. And Texas at that point was still, you know, viewed Chris Sims as a Yankee. He had a not a good college experience. He was kind of in and out of the lineup, a lot of pressure. And it was the era before guys transferred. Like Chris should have just transferred out, but this was of the era of, no, 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 I'm going to prove them. I'm going to beat Oklahoma, all that kind of stuff. So Phil looks back and he says, man, 17 year olds don't know what the hell they're doing. They're making these college decisions based on, I'm sure, where are the prettiest girls and, and things like that. So Chris looks back and he says, I wish I had been more involved in my son's choosing of a college. And it's an interesting chapter because it goes against what all the other dads are saying. So obviously this now becomes part of what college coaches have to deal with to a certain degree. They have to deal with quarterback dads. I mean, you'd think that by the time, you know, the kid gets to college, you'd have to step aside and, and, and let the, the coach do his thing. You can't be a helicopter coach with a, with a big 10 coach or excuse right. a helicopter dad with a big 10 coach. But this stuff can be problematic even nowadays and more and more. But I was interested to read, you know, a guy you're close to because you covered to him for a long, covered him for a long time, Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern. Yes. And he, one of the, you know, one of the favorites in our business because, you know, Fitz is just an easy guy to get along with and says interesting things. So I thought he had an interesting perspective when, when you asked him about how much do you have to deal with this and sort of the way, the way he recruits in dealing with this. So I asked Fitz, do you have any bad quarterback dads? And he goes, no. I said, well, how's that possible? He goes, oh, it's simple. We weed them out. So (laughs) when when Fitz and his staff start recruiting a kid, say, you know, they start looking at the ninth and 10th grade, Fitz will ask the dad, hey, what type of quarterback dad do you plan on being? And Fitz's line to me was, you'd be amazed some of the answers these these guys give me. You know, some guys you can tell he's going to be a difficult rascal. So (laughs) um, because Fitz knows this, if you're a 
a slightly difficult quarterback dad in the 10th grade, if you're the dad who is, you know, complaining about the offensive coordinator and claiming, oh, my kid, you know, threw for three touchdowns, but would have had five if the wide receivers didn't drop the ball. And if you're filming every single rep, you know, in practice, you're going to be a pain in the ass when that kid's in college. <laughs> you're going to be calling and texting the offensive coordinator and the head coach saying, why isn't my kid playing? Why isn't he a bigger part of the offense? And Fitz doesn't want to deal with it. So he would rather take the three-star kid with the great attitude and, you know, non-problematic parents than the more talented kid who's going to be an absolute headache down the line. Um, and what's interesting now is Fitz is actually a quarterback dad. His son Ryan plays. And Ryan's trainer is Dan Persa, who uh, had, a great oh, sure. in, had a great career at Northwestern. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, I will say this, though. Listen, Northwestern's done a great job under Fitz. It's, it, you know, obviously, you know, he's, done a, he's done an amazing job bringing that program to heights that I think a lot of us never thought it could get to. They're also not in on a lot of the high four stars and those type of guys. So yes. I, I, I would wonder if I if I if I injected Fitz with true serum there and I said, listen, you could get one of these five stars. Would you make a little more room for the dad? You know, it might be a little bit of a different answer. Like, in other words, so he can he can sort of live in that world, whereas others can't. Like, you know, listen, if you're if you're recruiting at the very high end of oh, yeah, the yeah. of the food chain, you might have to just sort of suck it up and deal with some of these guys. Yeah, those top coaches are just going to ignore the texts and phone calls from the dad and just say, screw him. The kid's mine now and I'll control it. But no, I mean, Fitz, you know, lives what he says. I mean, he has always the guys with the good attitude, and that's part of why they've suffered. You know, he did end up uh, with Hunter Johnson with a five-star transfer from Clemson, and poor thing did not get much out of him. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's an interesting case study there about – Somebody who says the attitude is more important. The attitude is more important than than the number of stars next to his name. Okay, last one for you here, and then we'll get you on out of here. Is I, I guess what was your um? Is this only getting worse? I guess would be your t- like look look at this thing going forward here. There's right. so much value. I, I, like I keep wondering, and I guess worse may not be the right maybe not be the right word, but more intense. Like I just wonder, like. Yeah. Like, where does this end? Like, is it is it sixth graders getting scholarships? Right. Like, where does the, like this business of quarterback seems to be getting bigger? And I also, but I find myself wondering, like, where else can it go? So, so a couple thoughts. So, so we have a dad in the book, uh, one of the last chapters. His name is Jamal Doggett, and he has a son, Josiah. So the dad already has a three-minute highlights package on Facebook, and the son wears a fake arm tattoo sleeve to games. He also has customized cleats, and he uh, wears a championship ring. The dad says the son, had, he's, they've been offered $1,000 to switch teams. Uh, the son is seven years old, <laughs> and the dad swears he's going to play in the NFL. So we have that going on. But you don't want to demonize these dads. You know why, Ralph? Because – this dad wakes up. This dad uh, works the midnight shift at the Ford plant as a technician, so he can wake up with his kid and um, then take him to quarterback and speed training. So on the one hand, it's way too much, and on the other hand, it's so much better than you know than absenteeism dads. You know, I would say everything is becoming more intense, Ralph, because of NIL. So now it's not only I got to make my sure, got to get make sure my kid is a five star. And then make sure he gets offered from, you know, every prominent school out there. It's also, I got to work on my kid's branding. 
So right. I got a call a couple of weeks ago from Kane and Adam Archer who were in the book because they're fighting over whether Kane should be deleting Instagram posts of the schools that he's not interested in attending. This is what's going on now with quarterback dads. They're having raging debates about Instagram. So, no, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Um, you know, 20 years ago, there were maybe only a handful of quarterback trainers. Now every city, I'm sure some cities have 20 quarterback trainers alone. And parents are going to say, well, if I'm going to invest a lot in my kid, I want an ROI. I want a return on my investment and at least get their college paid for. Yeah, interesting times we live in. Very interesting times. Teddy Greenstein <laughs> is he's great, first of all. Uh you said he's senior editor at Points Bet, but this book is uh sounds like a good sounds like a very good Father's Day present. And just you know what? Sell the book a little bit. Where can people find it? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Ralph. No, I I really is, you know. Most, most quarterback books, most football books come out in the fall, but I decided to come out in the spring, um, one, so guys like you would have me on your podcast so you could, <laughs> because you can't talk about real football or not too much about it since it's not in season, and two, this exact reason for Father's Day. So the website is qbdads.com, and I suggest you go there rather than Amazon because you can check out our merch. We've got quarterback, we've got quarter, quarter zips. We've got T-shirts for the kids and for adults. We've got hats, all that kind of stuff. So perfect timing. You've got a little time before Father's Day. Place a nice order, and uh, your dad, your brother, your grandpa will uh, be very satisfied, I'm sure. Yeah, if you're a dad, if you have a, if you look in the crib and you think, boy, I think that little, <laughs> that, I think my little one year old could be a quarterback. Go grab this book because you want to. You'll learn a few lessons and you'll enjoy a few stories. Teddy, man, again, uh, very much appreciate your time. Miss running into you in press boxes, but know you're living yep. a good life now of not being on deadline quite so much. So, uh, always great catching up with you. And you know, maybe we'll commiserate about the Jets. Uh, apparently, they had a good draft, Teddy. I hate to even say it. I cringe thinking <laughs> like even even being the slightest bit optimistic. I cringe. That's right. Well, I'm going to bet the over on their win total of of six, uh, five and a half or six at points bet. So, so if you want to uh, if you want to pull in uh, with me on that bet, let's uh, let's commiserate together when they start out three and eleven. Okay. Oh, I can't believe you're going to be the optimistic side of that bet. You, how, how long have you been doing this, Teddy? And I'm not doing this as far as your job, but being a Jets fan, you should know better, Teddy. You should know exactly when will we ever learn but uh, it's a low bar this year it's a low bar for the wind tunnel so hopefully they can at least sniff uh sniff get the 500 all right everybody everybody go get quarterback dads for your dad or the the, the soon-to-be dad in your life teddy greenstein thank you so much for joining me today ralph russo you are fantastic man thanks for having me and now three and out and this three and out will be a college football hall of fame themed three and out this year's college football hall of fame ballot was released earlier this week most notably making his debut on the ballot tim tebow the heisman winner and two-time national champion at florida seems like a slam dunk to get in in his first year of eligibility though i wouldn't make too much of that distinction The College Football Hall of Fame has had a huge backlog of worthy players, in part because for years the selection process wasn't taken terribly seriously, probably not seriously enough. Over the last two decades, under the current leadership at the National Football Foundation, they've done a much better job 
of making the Hall of Fame a more legitimate honor for college football's greats. Still, you can only put so many players in each season while still making it a special honor. And the fact of the matter is the NFF will probably never catch up and have all the worthy players in and in in a timely fashion. Again, first ballot Hall of Famers are not a really big deal with the College Football Hall of Fame, but I do suspect Tebow will be an exception who will go in on first try. Second down, as you might recall, Reggie Bush didn't make it onto the ballot until last year. For years, he was essentially locked out of the Hall of Fame for NCAA violations during his time at USC. Once his NCAA-enforced disassociation with USC ended, that allowed the school to support Bush as a candidate for the Hall of Fame, even though he still has a vacated Heisman Trophy victory, according to the Heisman Trust. That's because the NCAA declined to retroactively wipe clean the Bush and USC case. Will Bush get in this year? I'm going to guess no that he probably will have to wait at least one more season. So it's not necessarily that the Heisman thing hasn't sorted itself out. And on the as far as the NCAA is concerned, Bush has still committed NCAA violations. And that in turn makes him a vacant Heisman Trophy winner, if such a thing actually makes sense. The reason why Bush might have to wait another year has to do more about the backlog that we talk about with the Hall of Fame. USC has a lot of players in the Hall of Fame, including Carson Palmer, the former Heisman Trophy winning quarterback who went in just last year. Generally, the Hall of Fame will avoid having a school represented in consecutive Hall of Fame classes. That's not a hard and fast rule, more of a rule of thumb. As we said, there are so many deserving players that the folks who run the Hall and ultimately decide who gets in try to spread the honor around. There is no rule saying USC can't have a player honored in consecutive seasons. I'm sure you could find recent examples of a school getting a player in in back-to-back years, but generally it's just something that the Hall tries to avoid. I think the Hall of Fame was hoping the Heisman situation would have been resolved with Bush being restored as the winner in 2005 by now. But again, that just doesn't look like it's likely to happen anytime soon unless the Heisman Trust has some kind of change of heart. I honestly don't know if that hanging over Bush will keep him out of the Hall of Fame long term. But I think the Hall is likely to look elsewhere this year And then reconsider Bush and, I think, give him his day in 2023. Third down. The other first-timer on the ballot who I think should go in without delay is Luke Keekley, who was a monster as a linebacker for Boston College, then went on to a great pro career with Carolina Panthers. Unfortunately, that career was cut at least a little short by frequent concussions. Here are a few other players who have been on the ballot for a while who I would love to see get in. Antoine Randall who was a quarterback ahead of his time at Indiana in the late 1990s and early 2000s. You can only imagine what he would have done in some of today's offenses that really embrace the dual threat quarterbacks. Herman Moore was a star player at Virginia in the early 1990s. 
a great wide receiver who I always thought of as Megatron before Megatron. Eric Berry, the star safety at Tennessee, was a game-changing defensive player. And lastly, one of my personal favorites, Craig Ironhead Hayward, the late former Pitt star, was not only a dominant running back during the 1980s, but a truly iconic college football player. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. If you have questions you'd like me or my guest to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25, the digits 25, mailbag at gmail.com. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.